Matt, I did want to tell you one thing, though, that, you know, since you're talking about some of these historical inaccuracies, you know that the shark wasn't real. What? Hello and welcome back to There Will Be Spoilers, 100 Films, 100 Podcasts. My name is Matt Vizell. And I'm Ethan Knight. And this week on AFI's Top 100 list, we watched Jaws. Jaws. 1975 film. Ethan, the last film we watched was Rocky. Rocky. Which was just a year apart from Jaws. Jaws. Now, I don't think these were both showing in the same theaters when they were premiering. But it is kind of crazy to think that both of these movies were so close together in time. Yeah, definitely. So you've seen Jaws before, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, a thousand times. A thousand. A literal thousand. I've seen it zero times. Well, one time now. Well, one time, yes. As of this recording, I have now seen Jaws the one time. The one time. Ethan, I think it'd be immensely helpful to both myself and our audience, if you give us a plot synopsis. First of all, I will say, if you haven't seen this movie like Matt, where the fuck have you been living? Uh, the fact that I need to give a plot synopsis at all is a joke, but I'm going to do it regardless because some of you out there might be like Matt and have not seen this movie. And also, it's just good to have. Jaws is the story of a massive great white shark that terrorizes the community of Amity Island. The shark begins by killing a young woman who's skinny dipping late one evening. When the remains of her body are found, outsider police chief Martin Brody moves to close the beaches. However, the mayor vetoes this due to his fear that closing the beaches will ruin the town's summer success, and the girl's death is ruled a boating accident. Shortly after, another shark attack occurs, and the town is forced to face the facts. Outside scientist Matt Hooper arrives to consult, and local fisherman Quint offers to catch the shark for ten grand. The mayor refuses Quint, obviously, uh, and a bunch of other local fishermen go out to hunt the shark, and they do catch a large tiger shark. Hooper's very skeptical, but the mayor is happy just to have what he thinks is going to be an end to the terror. But however, Brody and Hooper cut that shark open, and there are no human remains inside. The two then discover a sunken boat during a night dive, and in it, Hooper finds a very large great white shark tooth, but he drops it when the corpse of the boat's owner frightens him. The mayor will not listen to the t men's concerns and refuses to shut the beaches down during the 4th of July weekend. Of course, the shark returns and kills a boater right in front of Brody's son, and finally the mayor is convinced to hire Quint. Hooper, Brody, and Quint go out into the ocean on the Orca, which is Quint's boat. As they chum for the shark, it appears, and the men shoot a flotation barrel into the shark's skin. The shark pulls the barrel down, though, and the men are forced to wait again. The shark returns late one night and rams the boat, which loses power, but then the men get it back. In the morning, Brody attempts to call a Coast Guard, but Quint smashes the radio to prevent further communication. The men chase the shark again and land several more harpoon barrels. Quint keeps one of the lines attached to the boat and tries to pull the shark into shallow water, but the shark ends up pulling the boat down into the water, and it begins to take on all this water before the engine fails. 
Hooper suits up in a last-ditch effort and enters the water in a shark cage in an attempt to spear the shark with poison, but the shark destroys the cage. Hooper drops the poison and escapes to hide at the bottom of the water. The shark attacks the boat, eats Quint, and comes back for Brody, who manages to get an oxygen tank into the shark's mouth, which he then shoots with a rifle, which explodes, and the shark is killed. The boat sinks, Hooper surfaces, and the two men begin their swim back to shore. The end. A lot of people die in this film. Yes, a lot of people die in this film. A lot of people don't die as well. True, and you know, Hooper was supposed to die. Uh, Really? Yes, and what happened was this, because there's all sorts of lore about this film being made, Um, Mm -hmm. and one of the stories is that, you know, they have some actual shots of a real great white shark attacking a uh, shark cage, Um, and they were off the coast of Australia or something to get this footage, uh, and they got that great shot of the shark destroying the cage. However, there was no one in the cage at the moment, um, but Spielberg wanted to use it in the film, uh, and so they rewrote it so that Hooper escapes out of the cage so that the shark can destroy it, and we can get that cool shot. That was something I wanted to talk about in the deaths of characters, a lack of deaths. I think it's well done for this film that there are scenes like those two stupid fishermen that take out the roast and try to chum the waters for this giant shark and a dot gets ripped off and you're like oh man they're dead but then they both survive and it's just terrifying because they're hanging the suspense over we know this thing kills people right we've got the two scenes prior to this where the skinny dipper is killed and then the boy is killed right mm-hmm. alex kitchener is killed and so we know that it totally would devour some people and then the fact that it doesn't kill someone in that scene i think is is far more effective than it just killing someone because now there's always doubt in our mind now there's always this doubt of well is it going to actually kill his character or not right and that's why i think that shark cage scene is the most terrifying one in the entire film mm-hmm. can you just being in this little aluminum cage versus this 25 foot three ton prehistoric monster yeah smashing into it yeah, I was terrified for Matt Hooper and myself by extension in that scene. <laughs> but then opposite that is the fact that Quint dies. And that to me feels like for no reason. Quint dies for no reason because she's Ahab and Ahab has to die. I guess that is really thematized, right? Sort of jumping into themes here with... His obsession, like he kills the engine, right? They are stranded out there in the ocean because yeah. he is pushing the engine too hard. Yeah, and he's, I mean, he's killing this shark or or, or it's going to die trying. Uh, mm-hmm. It's very clear that, you know, and he's obsessed with sharks. I mean, he hates sharks all because of his, his experience in the USS Indianapolis where, you know, it sinks and the men sit in the water for days and you know so he hates sharks he's on this monomaniacal ahab style must destroy the great white shark must kill it it doesn't care he doesn't care about the money he doesn't really care about stopping the killings he just wants to kill this motherfucking shark i just think his actual death scene's a bit weird right so refer to the shark as bruce right because that's what he's called the multiple what would you call them? Animatronics. Animatronic shark, sure. Gets up on the back of the boat and is sinking it at an angle. And so there's a slope, and that's how we get all the the stuff flying into his mouth. And that's what gives Brody the idea to throw the air tank in there. But Quint is falling down into the shark's mouth, 
and he's like kicking at its mouth and he's staying on the outside and then it looks like he's on the outside but the very next shot he gets bit and then suddenly both his legs are in there and then he's macheteing it in the face to no avail and then quint is just gone it just seemed like a real lack of fanfare for a majority of other characters that have died in this film that have gotten a lot more death throes i guess i don't know it just seems strange to to give that huge scene about quint relating the events of the USSS indianapolis and then to have him die in about a minute well i mean i think that's kind of the point right is that in a, it, the film sets up an expectation that Quint will kill the shark or he'll get some sort of uh, huge death scene. And we don't get that, right? It's completely subverted, and that's why it's it's so unsettling. I mean, he just it, he turns around and the shark is there, and in like 30 seconds he's gone. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, what this film does very well is flip our expectations or, or build up our expectations, um, you know, so often uh that when it does give us moments like that you know it's like what the fuck what just happened did did he just get eaten you know i think that's part of what this what makes this film so terrifying and good i think also what i'm struggling with is that i find that uss indianapolis scene to be the most strong scene in the entire film yeah that's where i remember most of the quotes that you know i haven't seen this film but i've still heard a lot of the quotes from it and that's right. I feel like I get most of them. So that's actually our pivotal scene. So I want to sort of swim us over to that. Oh my and God. <laughs> I was just thinking of like a bad pun to make. That one suffices. So this scene, I think, is incredible. We've got our three main protagonists, Hooper, Brody, and Quint. They're all sitting around the, well, I guess it's a, it's a table inside their little mess inside the the ship and they're drinking and they're telling stories about their scars right that classic show me your scars and tell me your story scene and Brody's really a non-participant in this even though he's a police officer from New York he really doesn't have anything there is one time like pulls up a shirt to like almost talk about this one scar he has which was an appendectomy scar it's actually the actor's real scar but you know all the other guys the two others that is have these bite marks from sharks. And then, you know, Brody points out something on his arm. It's actually a tattoo that's been removed. He's removed the name of the USS Indianapolis, which this is preceded by a creative nonfiction account, let's say of the sinking of the USS Indianapolis. It's remarkably coherent with history as we know it, but, and I can't be, for certain on this but i think the amount of deaths by sharks during that incident are much higher in this story than actually happened right it's mostly dehydration and drowning right but people are definitely getting at by sharks so that's that's no good either so let's go ahead and play this scene and then we'll come back and talk about it what's that one what that one there on your arm oh uh... A tattoo. I got that removed. Don't tell me. Don't tell me. Mother. <laughs> <laughs> what is it? <laughs> to Hooper, that's the USS Indianapolis. <laughs> I 
You were on the Indianapolis? What happened? Japanese submarine slammed two torpedoes into our side, Chief. He was coming back from the island of Tinian to Lady. just delivered the bomb, the Hiroshima bomb. 1,100 men went into the water. The vessel went down in 12 minutes. Didn't see the first shark for about half an hour. Tiger, 13-footer, you know? You know that when you're in the water, Chief? You tell by looking from the dorsal to the tail. What we didn't know was our bomb mission had been so secret, no distress signal had been sent. They didn't even list us overdue for a week. Very first light, Chief. Sharks come cruising. So we formed ourselves into tight groups. You know, it's kind of like old squares in a battle, like you see in a calendar, like the Battle of Waterloo, and the idea was, shark comes to the nearest man, that man, he start pounding and hollering and screaming, and sometimes the shark would go away. Sometimes he wouldn't go away. Sometimes that shark, he looks right into you, right into your eyes. You know the thing about a shark, he's got lifeless eyes, black eyes, like a doll's eye. When he comes at you, he doesn't seem to be living until he bites you. And those black eyes roll over white and then... Oh, then you hear that terrible high-pitched screaming. The ocean turns red, and despite all the pounding and the hollering, they all come in, they rip you to pieces. You know, by the end of that first dawn, lost a hundred men. I don't know how many sharks, maybe a thousand. I don't know how many men, they average six an hour. Thursday morning, Chief, I bumped into a friend of mine, Herbie Robinson from Cleveland. Baseball player, bosun's mate. I thought he was asleep. Reached over to wake him up. Bobbed up and down in the water, it was like a kind of top. Upended. Well, he'd been bitten in half below the waist. Noon the fifth day, Mr. Hooper, Lockheed Ventura saw us. He swung in low and he saw us too. A young pilot, a lot younger than Mr. Hooper anyway. He saw us and he come in low. And three hours later, a big fat PBY comes down and starts to pick us up. You know, that was the time I was most frightened, waiting for my turn. I'll never put on a life jacket again. So, oh, 1,100 men went in the war. 316 men come out, the sharks took the rest June the 29th, 1945. Anyway, we delivered the bomb. Like a doll's eyes. <laughs> you stupid. <laughs> it's a great line. It's parodied all the time. That's true. Clint delivers it with such conviction. And you think about it and you're like, damn, that is true about sharks. They're very scary. And just like his description about 
how it doesn't appear to be alive until it grips onto you and its eyes roll back and you just see the white and it's just thrashing you about and it's like god that's terrifying and it's also a really interesting interplay with the fact that the animatronic sharks that they're using of course they've got dead eyes because they're not real sharks and so it just reinforces that fact you know yeah definitely so i'm a big sucker for any kind of history working itself into a film in a let's say non-obtrusive way Mm -hmm. i think this is a great way to give a real history to quint as a character really understand his ahab motivations like you mentioned earlier in the episode and it really endears us to him and you think like oh when we first met him he's a crass totally not pc old fisherman right and now that we have this backstory say okay yeah you were traumatized by this horrifying event and i i can be sympathetic and also empathetic for you yeah and then he just dies so suddenly and i think that's what i'm hung up on but the fact that this story is so close it hews so close to the history we know i think it's very very good uh it's also world war ii history so you know of course i love it right we'll mention this later in our three questions but the fact that they weren't able to show the shark as much as they wanted yes actually became a huge point of success for this film yes because it's like good monster film right that you don't show the monster often or early right and i mean this this goes back to even greek theater uh this idea of not showing the violence um or show or not showing the monster or whatever it is right is uh, a, a technique that we have used as far back as we can remember. Um, the Greeks took all the violence off stage. Um, and part of the reason that you do this is because whatever you can imagine in your head uh, is, is going to be more frightening than what they can show you. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, the fact that this shark is not seen most of the film turns it. I mean, you can, you can create whatever you want, uh, whatever it looks like right underneath your or underneath the water um, and it do- won't that doesn't look fake because it, you know that's not going to age because you don't see it it's in your head right uh, but yeah we can so we can leave that for later to talk about that more but that all being said I will say when they did show the shark a lot in the last what 15 minutes the climax of the film right, right things shit has really hit the fan at this point yes and our three to two to maybe one characters remaining are trying to combat this thing when you actually do see that shark swim beneath the boat or when you see it hop up on hop up on the boat seems like such a a silly term but when it hefts its three-ton bulk onto the ship and you see it it's terrifying it is absolutely terrifying yeah there's something about the shark too in its fakeness uh that I think works really well still, you know, in in that, like, it is a monster. It's not really a shark, you know. It doesn't look like a shark looks or moves like what, you know, what a a shark actually moves like because it's a monster. You know, this is a monster movie. And so that, I think, lends itself to why this thing is just not pleasant to look at. I don't know if we can use the term uncanny necessarily because... Speaking of it, well, it is uncanny. It's not uncanny valley, maybe, because it's not human. But there is something just so unsettling about this animatronic shark and the way it's moving around the water. And I have a real fear of this animatronic creature, knowing that's animatronic animatronic creature, 
just if I were an actor and I see that thing just like moving beneath me on the boat, I would be terrified like that. Maybe they'd get some good acting out of me, but that that just seems like the scariest thing imaginable to me. Well, and I, I mean, if if we're thinking about what it would be like to act in this movie, I would be terrified that that machine would kill me, like that it would right. malfunction. You know what I mean? Yeah, like it's a it's a real terrifying thing because you're not just dealing with a big rubber shark. Even if you were, you know, if you got caught on one of its fake rubber teeth and it just pulled you under, right. <laughs> you're done. Yeah, uh, I think part of my fear of this uh, comes from. When I used to live in Houston, I live in Houston again now, but as a child, there was the National History History Museum and they had like this giant, I guess it had to be some sort of plastic whale or or Mega Man shark hanging from the ceiling as you walk in. Yeah. And I was always terrified that it would fall on me when oh. I'd walk in. And so I have a a real fear for large seafaring creatures, whales more than sharks though, I'll say. Mm. But that's neither here nor there. Ethan, I want to get to my thesis about this film. Yes. So we can continue talking about it. So I would say Jaws is a pretty straightforward monster thriller film, but it's one of the best of those. It learned from its genre horror roots and relies on people and their relationships rather than the monster to drive the plot, which is not something I think we can say about a lot of modern films, right? That yeah. If it's a monster film, it's about the monster. And Jaws, it's called Jaws. It's about this huge monster. That's all well and good, but it's really about Brody's relationship to his family, his relationship to his work, this new relationship to Matt Hooper, which, by the way, we haven't recognized him for, I forget the character's name, but he was in American Graffiti. Oh, yeah, Dreyfus. Uh, yeah. I really like him in this one. Yeah. I like him. I liked him in, in American Graffiti, as much as I liked anybody in that film, but I really like him a lot in, in this one. Yeah, I agree. I think it's a great performance that comes, uh, from rich Richard Dreyfus, I think Richard Dreyfus. Yeah. I also like to mention, this is something I brought up very, very early on in our toy story episode, Andrew Staten's Ted talk, the guy who wrote toy story mm -hmm. brought in a bunch of clips to show you about classic American films, all these lessons he's learned about storytelling and that Jaws scene where Brody sits at the table and after Alex Kitchener's mother has slapped him and said, like, you've done this, basically. Mm -hmm. And the, the young boy is copying his moves. Oh, it's yeah. such a sober scene for a monster horror thriller film. And no one really knows it's there because you just don't think about it when you think about Jaws. And he was talking about how valuable a scene like that is. And I agree with it, right? And it's been, you know, what, two or three years now since I've first seen that TED talk, but it's still true. You see that scene and you say, wow, this really gives additional characterization and adds to the stakes that people like Brody have. Whereas another worse film, which we could point to like 50 or 60 different examples today, just simply don't have. Yeah, definitely. Gotta go character first, right? If your monster's a character, that's one thing, but your monster just can't be a killing machine and call it a character. Yeah, absolutely. There need to be stakes. I mean, there need to be stakes and the stakes are made clear in this film. And there's also stakes in the water because they chum the water a lot. True, there are stakes in the... Oh, my God. <laughs> Jesus. Well, my uh, thesis goes a little different, uh, differently than yours, um, and we haven't really talked about this yet so far. Um, but having seen this film many, many times, I really think that this, at the end of the day, is a film that is about capitalism uh, and how far it will go in the face 
of tragedy. Um, because this is, I mean, the whole reason that the shark is able to continue killing people is because they won't shut down the beaches because they need to make money. Um, and so the first person dies and they will not shut down the beach because, you know, we need to make money. And the second person dies and they're like, well, we have to catch a shark so that we can keep making money. And then finally, you know, the third person is killed and they're like, okay, I guess we... Are gonna like we're gonna. I mean, it, what it is is that capitalism itself is threatened, right? Because there's mm-hmm. now no way to you know deny that what they're doing is letting people die, to because they want to make money. Um, so when that then becomes faced, uh, when when it you know when capitalism itself is faced with something that could destroy it, right? Uh, they're like, all right, all right, send the guys out, send the guys out, get the get the shark, um, and you know. The reason they don't originally send Quint is because it's of money, right? Is ten? They're like, he's you're crazy. We're not giving you ten thousand dollars, you know. So money is something that really drives this film uh, in a lot of ways because you know the the part on the boat uh, is not a whole lot of the movie. A lot of the movie is the setup on the beach, right? Mm-hmm. In Amity. Uh, so I really think that this film is an is an exposure. Uh, in a lot of ways, of the way capitalism works and the way that it doesn't care about the humans. It doesn't care about the little guy, right? It doesn't care about morality or what's right or wrong. It cares about feeding the machine, right? And the shark then itself can be uh, understood as a, a symbol of capitalism in that way, right? It, it, it doesn't do these things uh, for anything except to feed itself right to continue doing it it there's that line where uh hooper says something about like it swims around it eats things and it makes baby sharks and that's it it just reproduces itself you know to continue consuming people and that's what capitalism does right is it consumes people also corroborating your thesis with that is the idea that all these fishermen come from seemingly the ends of the earth to try to catch the shark for the it's only a three thousand dollar reward that Alex Kitchener's mother is offering, right? But it's still a huge amount of money in nineteen seventy five. I assume this is supposed to be contemporaneous with you know that time period, and they are just none of them prepared for doing battle with this voracious monster, right? And we just know they're all going out there to die, and some of them, in fact, do as we see, and some of them escape with their lives, but they don't even really contend with the horror of the situation because they're blinded by the prospect of money. Right. Yeah. Again, it's money is, is the undercurrent that drives this film. You know, uh, it really does. And people are motivated by, except for really um, Hooper and uh, Brody, everybody else is motivated by cash. Mm-hmm. And that's why they're successful in the end, right? It's because they're not motivated by money. Right, yeah. And I guess Quint isn't really motivated by cash, but... His... He's not also motivated by a great thing either. Obsession's maybe never a great thing to be motivated by. Right, as Moby Dick tells us. But there is something metafictional about this quest for money, this drive for money, and gotta keep the beaches open, gotta make that revenue. We're a summer town, right? Amity being based off of Martha's Vineyard, or as they, I guess they would say in Massachusetts, Martha's Vineyard. Martha's Vineyard. Was a population of 5,000 before the film came out, and then it trebled in size like immediately after the film came out. So very profitable for this town. 
So it's kind of, I don't know, I maybe say it was an irony, right? That right. there's this horror cautionary tale about the dangers of capitalism and, of course, obsession and monsters. And then it just feeds into, it just self-perpetuates, right? Yeah. So, Ethan, let's get into our three questions. Let's do it. Do we care about this film? Absolutely. I mean, you can't not care about this film. It has It is one of the most important American films. And I'm actually surprised that it's this low on the on the totem pole because this film has been endlessly endlessly uh parodied uh copied imitated uh stolen from directly uh and so on and so forth in so many ways it is such an important part of popular american culture that it's impossible i mean how can you not care about this film I would agree with this, and I think that would be why we care about it, and maybe a good way for us to move to our second question to justify the answer to the first. So, of course, that second question is, what do we owe this film? Yeah, I mean, we again, it's endlessly parodied, uh, endlessly imitated, stolen from, the whole thing. I mean, we owe so much. The Probably, you know, the irrational fear of sharks was... Not probably, certainly, um, because there's some. I read something not terribly long ago about how their scientists hate Jaws. They hate it mm-hmm. because it, people are irrationally afraid of sharks. I mean, shark, you, listen, you're more likely to get hit by a bus. You're more likely to die in your home for whatever reason than you are to get even bitten by a shark. But sharks are killed every year, you know, in massive numbers because of people are afraid of them. And part of that is Jaws, you know. Yeah, if you want to be afraid of something, be afraid of crocodiles. Those things are actual, the prehistoric monsters out there, they're crocodiles. They are mean. They'll wait for people, and they will maliciously kill them. Whereas sharks, it really is just misrecognition. That was one thing I think I liked about the Alex Kitchener scene, is that Alex is on this paddle thing, and he's splashing around, looking very much like a seal. So you can understand why the shark, a real shark, would attack him in that case. You're like, oh, okay, that's, you know. A little fair, but then again, this shark comes around and starts using its very small brain to try to hunt people down, which is not how sharks work. But yeah, I was watching this with my wife, and she's like, poor sharks. And I was like, what do you mean? Like, everyone hates them so much because of this film. And I was like, you are totally right. Yeah, I'm sure very few people were terrified to this extent of sharks until this film came out. Yeah. I, I think this film for me is a very... What is it? It's sort of a a perfect example of what this podcast is about in that it's a film I haven't seen, but know a great many of the lines and plot points just by cultural osmosis. Yeah. There was also a Mythbusters Jaws episode, so that's also probably part of it. Um, The air tank exploding in the shark's mouth and killing it in spectacular fashion which is really cool on screen though. It probably could have happened that way. And I think maybe the air tank, uh, Chekhov's gun yeah. portents is it maybe a little too cutesy, right? They like show you the air tank like five times. Like, no, really we are going to use this, <laughs> but I think there's so much that's been imitated from this film and so much that's been carried on so much. I didn't even know about. So someone would say a line and I'd be like, Whoa, I had no idea that was that from, from this film. Yes. And I mean, really, this film is the film that immortalized perhaps the greatest line of all cinema, um, which is, you want to get drunk and fool around? Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> I was like, well, all right. And then uh, 
what uh there's a production company or it's somebody's thing that shows up at the end of like a tv show yeah that's some bad hat harry yeah that's that's a line that someone has used in their like production company. Yeah, and I think they were it's some sort of Spielbergian thing. I think it you know. Okay, so it actually is linked to him. Yeah, it's, it's some it's someone that worked on this film. It might be Spielberg's TV com- production company or something like that. But yeah, I mean even that you know it's it's all it's just Jaws is everywhere. Jaws is yeah. everywhere. The reach of this film is great, and I think that's why we have to care about it. And. I think that certainly shows that we have a lot uh, that we owe to it. This film is also directly responsible for something that we bitch about on this podcast often, which is the shitty, mindless summer blockbusters. Uh, This film is the first summer blockbuster. There was no such thing as a summer blockbuster before this film. Um, And this is part of the reason why it is so widely imitated, or at least even it's... um, idea the like this idea of the summer concept film right um that you know you have it's a movie about sharks it's a simple premise uh that it has spectacle um that is made to make money uh and this is you know this is where even star wars comes from right this idea which comes just a little bit later it's the same thing it's space jaws uh in in a lot of ways um, Jurassic Park, which is another Spielberg one, is another. It's a summer blockbuster. You put it out in the summer. You know, you have a simple concept: dinosaurs park and they eat people. It's Land Jaws, as my friend James always says. Uh, <laughs> you know, so we we get this sort of thing. This these films like this did not exist. This studios didn't exist. You know, didn't create big summer blockbusters uh, or or fi- or look for a uh, perfect formula to make. A movie that will become that'll come out in the summer and make a ton of money um, until this movie showed that you could, uh, and it. And let me tell you, make money. This movie did a lot of it. I also think that we can maybe levy that. I don't think it's a criticism, but it's certainly a common thread that a lot of imitation films have taken perhaps the wrong lessons from their source material. Absolutely. But this whole AFI canonical list, as we like to call it really is responsible for the state of films today that and i don't know maybe there's something in the water that's just making us stupider because the people that are taking lessons from these films are just not taking the right ones right, right. we're getting these i'm gonna say something i guess people will find controversial but i know i don't really like these these marvel films and i think that they they're not really useful to film in the same way that like jaws and rocky to take two you know, very previous examples of. But all that being said, Ethan, why don't we turn to our third and final question? Does this film hold up? Oh, yeah. I mean, certainly this film holds up. And part of that, as we've pointed out, is because the shark uh, is not seen, right? I mean, this is what everybody points to. Um, The fact that the production, you know, the shark didn't fucking work and it looked fake. Um led to not using it as much as possible um and it you know even spielberg talks about how like it went from you know sort of a saturday morning spectacle like an old serial or something or an errol flynn movie or something um to like a hitchcock film because he Mm -hmm. couldn't show the shark i mean the shark does look kind of fake yes uh but I, as we pointed out earlier, that part of that, I think, helps it. The fact that it's a shitty animatronic and it doesn't, you know, look really like what a shark would look like. Let me tell you, and it, and, and it's practical effects. Practical effects hold up 
better. They just do. Yeah, I agree with that because, you know, when you're using real materials, you're always going to have some sort of verisimilitude to it. But if you try to do CGI, we'll see in some other films. We have seen some of our bonus content films that, like, doesn't hold up very well in a lot of cases. So I think you're right about saying practical effects are definitely going to hold up. I also think the technical limitations of them not being able to show as much of their creatures they wanted to definitely works in its favor. And they still use some of the film techniques, right? The Jaws shot that like first time we see Brody on the beach where he's afraid that, yeah, something has happened. They zoom into his face. Oh yeah. The crane shot or the, yeah, the tracking shot, whatever it is. Um, yeah, that's, that is one of the most effective shots ever. I mean, that really it, it perfectly captures that feeling. Still useless. Like we're teaching film students these techniques. So obviously something about cinematography is still working here. Also, I don't think anything really shows through as glaring, right? Maybe the fact that Quint smashes a radio and Brody doesn't pull out a cell phone and dial right. up the Coast Guard. But like, that's not something you would really actually ask the film to say like oh i wish it would do this it should be more modern right it's very much a film of its time in a way that you're happy with as opposed to some films you're like "Ooh, this one's kind of dated in strange ways i agree well and i think maybe because we've talked about this before this idea of like it's it's a film of its time in a good way right like it's a 70s film but it feels 70s in the right way and i think that maybe that has to do with narrative rather than anything visual i think you know mm-hmm. because the story here it, this is this is moby dick this is old man in the sea um the you know this story itself is is a story we we'd like it's a monster movie in a very pure sense um and maybe that is why the trappings of the night of 1975 don't really matter in the same way with Rocky that, you know, that's a story about an under it's a, it's a fusion of an underdog story and a love story. Um, and so it doesn't really matter if it's set in the seventies because the story itself is, is good and has been retold. I mean, this is why it's imitated and retold and, 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 you know, it had been retold before Rocky and after Rocky, uh, you know, so I think maybe it does have something to do with narrative rather than, uh, stage dressing in any sort of way also maybe bring up something potentially mind-blowing maybe these feel like 70 films in a good way because these films have already set the stage for what a 70s film should look like yeah like that's kind of crazy to think about that they were like oh but this is in a, a good way this looks like a like when we think of the sixth sense they were like oh it's a 90s film but like in the way that we are comfortable with like well maybe this right. is just because it's the it's the sixth sense you know yeah, it could be. So we'll leave you to chew on that. Like a shark. Like a, sh- like a shark. <laughs> because that's all we have time for today. And we want to point everyone's attention to the next time we return. We'll actually be back next week here because we will have a rundown. Oh, yeah. I think it'll be our ninth rundown. Oh, jeez. 45 films through this list. Almost halfway. Almost halfway. And then after that, we'll return again with a film called North by Northwest. Ooh, that's going to be a fun one. I haven't seen it. I haven't seen it either, but I know all about it. All right. So we'll look forward to that. But until next time, I've been Matt Vizell. And I'm Ethan Knight. And there will be spoilers. Matt, we're going to need a bigger spoiler. 1,100 spoilers go into the water. (laughs) 316 spoilers come out. (laughs) Uh, You want to get drunk and listen to some spoilers?
There Will Be Spoilers 100 Films 100 Podcasts was created and hosted by Matt Bazell and me, Ethan Knight. Matt Bazell produces our episodes each week. Our music was created by the strange and unusual Breakmaster Cylinder, who you can find all over the internet. Our artwork was created by Becca Knight, who can be found on Twitter at Becca the Knight, and that's Knight with a K. You can follow There Will Be Spoilers on Twitter at SpoilersCast, and you can hear more episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like our podcast, you can support us on Patreon for $5 a month at patreon.com slash spoilerscast. Your donation gives you access to two extra bonus episodes a month. Thank you for listening, and please tune in next week for more spoilers. Spoilers.